0: Hello, my name is Andy Morgan, and welcome to another episode of the ripbody.com podcast.
1: Dude, if, if you're like a hardcore ketophile, you're probably not going to be aware of the vast majority of research that says otherwise. If you're not spending time on PubMed, and you're mostly just spending time like reading blogs and perusing social media, and you find yourself in an echo chamber, and you get into discussion, and you toss those studies out at people, that's not cherry picking. That's just being unaware of what else is out there.
0: This is the first of a multi-part interview with Greg Knuckles of strongerbyscience.com. Greg is one of my favorite people in the industry. He's actually one of my favorite people, full stop. He's exceptionally smart, a gifted writer, humble, and also happens to be one of the strongest people in the world. In this episode, Greg covers three key things. Number one, how he started out in this industry and has come to speak internationally in such a short period of time. Then, number two, onto the bulk of the interview, why there persists to be a myth that studies seem to contradict each other all the time. And number three, how crucial he feels it is to read research for yourself versus rely on a research review. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did with my good friend, Greg Knuckles. Greg, thank you for your time. Welcome to the podcast, buddy.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: So you've just got back from
1: your travels in Europe. How were they? What were you doing? Oh, they were great. Uh, just vacationing in Belgium, then uh, in Ireland for a conference. Um, Garbin and Danny Lennon just absolutely dominated that conference. It was uh, it was a very, very well-run event. A lot of fun. Um yeah dude, uh nothing but good things to say about it. Just just a blast all around.
0: Happy to hear that man. How did it feel um being uh you might be used to this now but how did it feel being up there as part of a presenting group with the group of gentlemen that you were presenting with?
1: Oh, it was it was absolutely surreal. I mean, like especially Uh, Eric Helms and Mike Desheer, like those, those are two guys who I've looked up to for a long, long time. So being able to present with them, especially was, uh, was, I mean, I guess dream come true is a little bit stronger than I would want to word it. And it sounds a little corny, but something, uh, just like a shade below that, like Mm. that was a really, really great experience. What was your
0: journey? to getting to that point, what is it that's taken you from, I mean, okay, so you, you, you touched away <clears throat> in the gym when you were younger and you mm-hmm. figured out that you were just really, really super strong at it and then you carried on. But how, how is it ignoring that, that you've been gifted at lifting? What's the educational path that you went on? that has brought you to now being a respected, um, not only lifter, but teacher, I suppose, in this industry?
1: Uh, I honestly don't know that my educational path has too much to do with it. Um, I have a bachelor's in exercise science, uh, starting my master's this fall. But I mean, at this point I don't really have any like meaningful formal qualifications. Um, In terms of how I learned the stuff I did, just general curiosity, um, I don't know. I would I would have a question and see that like people were bantering about it. And, uh, you know, just I'm not the type of person who's wired to believe something just because a lot of people say it's true. Like I want to know, like on a fundamental level, like why it's true. Uh, And so that got me into reading more about the science of of lifting and programming and everything around that. And um, yeah, it's pretty much it. Uh, Like I I would just have questions and try to figure out the answers to them and then just kind of write about it. Because I assumed if I had the questions, someone else did as well.
0: So what did you do then? You started writing where?
1: Uh, Gregknuckles.com. So basically... Basically, my wife is either, like, implicitly or explicitly responsible for, like, 100% of my success. (laughs) Because the the reason I started blogging in the first place um, is, like, I was obsessed with powerlifting, and I was just talking her ear off about it constantly. She was like, you should start a blog so you're not, like, just talking to me about this stuff 24-7 all the time. So I was like, okay, cool, let's do that. Um, And then I started Doing kind of like the online thing professionally because after school, um, basically like we we were high school sweethearts and um, I, long story, but I I was more or less the one who got to choose where we went to college. And so she got to choose uh, first thing we did after college and she got a job, uh, she got an internship at the Orange County Register newspaper out of school and uh, was only guaranteed 10 weeks up front. So I couldn't very well get a job in a gym out there because, you know, you can't be like, hey, I want to work with people here, but I might be gone in two months. Um, Yeah. So at that point, like there weren't a ton of people reading the site, but a reasonable amount of people were. And that that helped me catch the attention of Chad Wesley Smith at Juggernaut. Um, So... Most of what I did then was being the content manager for JTS, which was awesome. Chad's cool. All of those guys are awesome, um, and it also gave me more time just to work on my own website. And then when Lindsay got done at the Register, um, eh, this is all. This is also kind of a long story about why I ended up not going back to school. Then um, go on, and perhaps perhaps too contentious for this podcast. Um, go on. But, But yeah, so basically I was going to go back to school, decided not to. um, And she was having issues finding another journalism job. So I was like, hey, you want to come work with me and we can just do the online thing and be broke together? She was like, yeah, I'll work with you, but we won't be broke together. And basically, I I've just been doing the same thing the whole time. And when Lindsay came on board, that's when everything really started taking off because she's incredibly good at what she does. So like I manage the content side of things and she runs the business. And uh, yeah, so that's uh, that's my story, I guess.
0: It's the power of your writing and Lindsay's, I guess, copywriting and all of her other talents that she brings to it. Uh, it's the strength of your writing that has brought you so many fans. And that has over the last few years has just catapulted you into speaking gigs. Because you speak really well, guess, you're hungry to learn, so, and you're humble, aren't you? Uh,
1: well, <laughs> I, <laughs> dude, I'm the most humble person you're ever gonna meet. Like, I'm so humble, you have no idea. No, um, you know, I don't think I'm that good of a speaker. At least, like, at least like speaking, speaking, like formal speaking. Uh, but I do think I'm a relatively engaging speaker because I don't try to do that. Like I just get up in front of people with a slideshow and just have a conversation with them, crack some jokes. Um, you know, I, I don't take myself too seriously and my presentations are very information dense, but aren't as boring as they could otherwise be if I didn't kind of infuse some levity into the situation. Um, and I guess that's why people keep asking me to speak places. I don't know. Uh it's it's still kind of weird cuz I I don't feel like I'm personally on the same level in terms of what I know and especially in terms of like formal qualifications as a lot of other people who um do the same general thing I do, but um I think that's good. Uh I think I think it helps me kind of stay in my place and it keeps me hungry like to go back to school, learn more. Um, actually get some some of the qualifications i need so yeah
0: that 's a good segue into a, a reader question uh matt 's question um it's something that I asked great uh, <laughs> something that I asked Eric um a couple of podcasts mm-hmm. ago um, What do we tell people who discredit studies because there are so many contradicting each other um and when you do see a study that seems to contradict you, what do you what, what do you do with that?
1: So that's a good question. Um, so I think first and foremost, the kind of narrative that a lot of studies contradict each other is um, quite frankly false. And largely comes from misinformation about how generalizable studies are. Um, So, for example, um, like you may see one study saying X and another study saying not X. But the first study was conducted maybe with untrained lifters and the other study was conducted in elite athletes. Those studies aren't contradicting each other. They're saying different things about different populations. Um, And study methodology is also really, really important. So, um, in terms of like protein research, a lot of the older research used uh, like urinary nitrogen excretion methods to quantify uh, protein retention and better studies using tracer methods. Uh, Some of them have come to different findings. And, you know, those aren't the studies contradicting each other. That's just methodology getting better over time. Mm. And then the last thing is. when studies do like legitimately contradict each other, one, a lot of times their methods still aren't absolutely identical. So let's say you have two studies looking at, I don't know, linear versus daily undulating periodization. Unless the two studies used the exact same training program, they're using you know one program to represent DUP and one program to represent linear periodization. But that's Fundamentally, the the study is testing program A versus program B. It's not testing, you know, all iterations of linear periodization and all iterations of daily undulating periodization against each other. Um, So, yeah, you you very rarely see, like, 100% direct replications. And then the last thing is, like, sometimes there's just statistical chance. Like, unless – I would be very, very surprised to see two studies with – a thousand plus participants, same methods, direct replication come to completely different findings. But if you have, you know, somewhat similar studies, but somewhat different methodologies, different populations, um, you know, 12 people per study arm, even if in, even if like kind of in the grand scheme of things, they should have come to similar findings. Uh, you know, sometimes you just have sampling errors and, uh, like the like the mean of that study population doesn't approximate the mean of 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 what would occur if you ran that same study in all individuals that would have met the inclusion criteria so um and also like that's that is why you shouldn't put too much faith in one single study you should wait until uh like a larger body of literature around a single topic develops so you can get a broader look at everything you know kind of going on in that area of research. Because single studies can be wrong. Um you know even using like a P of less than 0.05 to establish statistical significance, depending on the likelihood that the hypothesis was true in the first place, you could have a significant finding that's still an incorrect finding. It can just be a false positive. Um, so, for example, here's like a, a classic example. Um, it's like, let's say you're screening for a disease, and one second, I I want to make sure I get the numbers right. Let's say you're screening for a disease, and one percent of people in the population have it. And you screen ten thousand people. Um, so, out of those ten thousand. A hundred people should have the disease and, um, yeah, yeah. A hundred people should have the disease. 9,900 should not have the disease because 1% of the people have it. Right. Let's say you're using. Be
0: careful of your mic on the, on your beautiful, beautiful beard. It's kind of giving a little rustling sound,
1: buddy. Yeah, there you go. Oh, I bet. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, (laughs) so yeah, yeah. Screening for a disease, 1% of the population has it. Yep. You're using a test to screen for the disease that's 95% sensitive and 95% specific. So it's 95% sensitive, meaning if you do have the disease, it's going to rightly tell you that you have it. And 95% um, or specific, meaning if you don't have the disease, it's going to tell you you don't have it. And sensitive, meaning if you do have the disease, it will tell you you do have it. Okay? Hmm. So those 100 those hundred people that do have the disease, it's going to identify the disease correctly in 95 of them and not catch it in five of them. That's pretty good. And in the 900 and or the 9,900, uh, you know, the vast, vast majority of them, it's going to say they don't have the disease. And I think in 45 of them or something like that, it's going to misidentify and say they do have the disease. Yeah. So... If you're So if, if you get screened and the test comes back and you say you have the disease, most people would assume your odds of actually having the disease are 95% because the test is 95% sensitive and uh, 95% specific. However, your odds of actually having the disease are only about two thirds because there's 45 false positives. There were so many more people that didn't actually have the disease that got a false positive in the test. Um so there were forty-five false positives and ninety-five true positives. So um yeah, your odds of actually having the disease if the test comes back positive the first time is only about two-thirds or so. Uh and that same thing can happen in research. If you're researching something that is kind of on its face unlikely to be true, and you get a positive statistically significant finding, it's uh it's that exact same scenario even, even though you got that P value of less than 0.05, there's still a decent chance that the finding wasn't actually legit. So that can also happen. Um, so yeah, I, I think, I think it's absolutely short sighted for people to completely discredit scientific findings in fitness or anywhere else, just because sometimes you have studies that contradict each other because often those studies aren't complete contradictions. And two, Uh, that same scenario I just told you, if you run that test again on the 140 people or whatever, who were like, said they had the disease the first time, the accuracy of the second test, like if you, if you ran it on those same people again, would be, you know, 95% or better, like bordering on 99%. So if you have replications, if you have a large body of research around a specific topic, the odds of that being incorrect are incredibly low. Right. Um, so, yeah, uh, I think I think it is absolutely wise to not put too much stock in a single study or a single scientific finding ever. But if there's a lot of studies saying relatively similar things and maybe just one or two studies saying the opposite, you can't you can't just cherry pick those one or two that are saying what you want them to. <laughs> oh,
0: oh, but people do. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that they do. That they do. You know, honestly, honestly, in this this might catch me some flack, but a lot of times, a lot of times I don't even know that it's cherry picking. I think a lot of it is just people in echo chambers. And let's say you're like a hardcore keto low Um There was a, oh, I'm blanking, I'm blanking on this study author, but there, there was like one or two studies um, that had some methodological issues that people have since pointed out but at least looked on the surface to show that there was like a legit metabolic advantage to eating a low-carb diet. And like, dude, if, if you're like a hardcore ketophile, you're probably not going to be aware of the vast majority of research that says otherwise. If you're not spending time on PubMed and you're mostly just spending time like reading blogs and perusing social media and you find yourself in an echo chamber and you get in a discussion and you toss those studies out at people – that's not cherry picking. That's just being unaware of what else is out there. Right. Um, I, think, I think cherry picking like, implies adverse intent. Like you're aware of the other stuff and you intentionally don't make other people aware of it. A lot of the stuff I see just in social media spats honestly seems to be just people who uh, have only been exposed to one side of a specific issue and aren't, in, aren't intentionally cherry picking. They're just not aware of what else is out there.
0: That's a very good point, Greg. Yeah. I, I like that as well. That goes with my life philosophy of not assuming ill intent.
1: Uh, are you aware of Hanlon's razor? Yeah. You told me about that actually. Yeah. I yeah. just, I just
0: forgot it was co- what it was called. Yeah.
1: Do do not ascribe to malice what can adequately be explained by stupidity?
0: Yeah. Yeah. A, what is the other one you it's, it's introduced so me to? It, it's, it's it's wonderful. It's, yeah. It's a great philosophy on life. It's like Where's, if, if you're walking down the street and someone's staring at you in the face, mm-hmm. right? There are two ways to assume. Obviously, you give a quick look, check that they're not having a knife. They don't have their fists clenched and they're not about to lamp you. But <laughs> like maybe they've got an earpiece in in their right ear, Right. Or and they're talking to someone, and someone's just said to them something really bad. Maybe they're thinking really hard, and they're actually just staring, and they're staring through you. You know what I mean? Don't assume. Yep. Don't assume.
1: Or or maybe they just like your shoes.
0: Maybe they. Di- I mean, my shoe game.
1: Maybe they're just like. Maybe they're just like Andy Morgan. His kicks are so fly. I don't even. I don't even know that guy, but I wish I had his shoe game.
0: Have you seen my new red shoes? No. Oh, dude, check out my Instagram. You'll see. <laughs> I, I I slipped them in into a uh, photo of a fire hydrant, which is pretty pretty cool, actually. You'll see. It's about a week back, something like that.
1: Yeah. I'm excited. I'll uh, I'll get on this.
0: I. Dorothy would be jealous. (laughs) The other one was a Dunning Kruger. I hadn't heard of that one before. (laughs) I'm just like, Oh yeah. Yeah. That's brilliant. Do you want to just explain that
1: one? Um, yes, I would actually, because this is actually a lot of people. It's kind of like meta Dunning Kruger. A lot of people who talk about Dunning Kruger actually don't know about Dunning Kruger, which is just hope hopelessly ironic. Um, (laughs) If you've ever seen one of those memes floating around, that's like, um, uh, y axis is what I think I know, and x axis is what I actually know. And when you know nothing, you realize you know nothing. And then as you learn a little bit, the curve slopes up like dramatically. And you know a little bit, but you think you know everything. And then as you learn more, it drops off. And then as you become like an expert in the field, it starts like slowly creeping up again. Right. That's how a lot of people conceptualize dunning Kruger effect like basically you know a little bit but you think you know everything. Mm. what the dunning Kruger effect actually says um, is basically they they quizzed people on uh on like various topics and asked like looked at their actual test results versus how they thought they performed on the test um And they found that people who didn't know much about a particular topic, uh, tended to overrate their competence on the subject matter more so than people, uh, who were like actual experts on that topic. Uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't like people who knew a little bit thought they knew everything. People who knew a lot did think they knew more than people who just knew a little bit, but, uh, people who knew a lot their self perceptions about how well they understood the subject matter were, um, we actually like pretty accurate versus people who didn't know as much were more likely to overrate their competence in the subject matter. But they didn't think they actually knew as much as the people who were truly experts. Um, so, yeah, people, people, un, people uh, have a tendency to overrate their competence in subjects that they don't know a ton about but not to the extreme uh, the extreme extent as it's uh, often presented on social media so so what does that yeah, lead it's, to? it's like a metting dunning kruger thing <laughs> what,
0: what does that lead to then this dunning kruger effect what happens what's the practical implications of it
1: so i guess kind of the the optimistic take on it is you assume that once people become aware of the dunning kruger effect if they believe it and they internalize it, maybe that, maybe that will make them less susceptible to it. Um, So essentially, so I find myself being less and less active on Facebook and social media in general, like hopping into arguments and discussions, because basically I'll look at the subject matter being discussed and I kind of run, run through it, like run myself through it. Like, you know, How much of this research am I aware of? Is there anyone currently in this discussion who I know knows more about this than me that I could, you know, send the comment thread to instead and be like, maybe you should weigh in on this instead of me? And then also, like, I'm a physiology nerd. And if I can't describe something at least somewhat well, all the way from the cellular level up to the like complete organism level, I know that there's something along that chain that I'm probably missing. And that makes me much less likely to, to wade into the discussion. Um, unfortunately, that's not, that's not a very like effective and efficient way. Sorry. Unfortunately, that's not like a very effective and efficient way to live your life because, Unless you're like devoting your life to learning about a specific topic, you're probably not going to have that level of understanding about things you have to deal with, like all the way from what food should I buy to what car insurance should I get to how should I invest my money, like all of that stuff. Um, So you're going to be acting from a position of ignorance about almost everything, almost all the time. And I think I, th- I think that I mean, like th- that's, that doesn't sound very optimistic, but like it's objectively true. Um, you may not be completely ignorant, but you're going to be ignorant about more than you realize you're ignorant of. And I think I think at the very least that should maybe just inspire a little bit of humility. Like I think the world would just be a better place in general if more people prefaced more statements with "I think." Um, one just just because that's going to not rub the listener as as badly if they're wrong. Uh, if someone says like, you know, I think, and then throw out something completely ridiculous, like at least that's a statement of of maybe I'm wrong about this. Like I think it's true, but I'm not making like a truth claim. And two, like if you're doing that constantly, or you're peppering in like probably's or maybe's in your discussions that's, that's also like reminding yourself kind of constantly that there is a chance I'm wrong about this. And again, like that's, that's honestly like kind of a stressful way to live because the more, the more confident you are in yourself and what you're doing and what you believe, the less just psychological energy you have to burn on a day-to-day basis to do anything. Um, but I think it's, I think it's more epistemically honest. So, anyway, it's probably it's probably bad in the grand scheme of things for the individual, but it would be good for society. So maybe we just need uh, just a, a greater spirit of pluralism in the West. I don't know. Who knows? What do you mean it's, by pluralism? Good, so, for, forgive
0: my ignorance there, Greg.
1: Uh, like doing things for the good of like the collective whole instead of for the individual.
0: Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pluralism, gotcha. So this leads nicely in to a follow-up question by Matt. Um, We're talking about the research and the importance of staying on top of it. How crucial do you think keeping up with the current literature is, i.e. actually reading and interpreting the data yourself compared to finding trusted resources who interpret the data for you, such as you know, Mass, which you've got, the aARR um examine.com's research digest, um, weightology.net's um Chris Brazley and is Bre- uh, a strength and conditioning research review. Um yeah,
1: yeah I, I don't think anyone should ever read full text for themselves. They should just subscribe to Mass and that's it. So easy Ex- question. Excellent No um no so I I <sighs> I think it sort of depends on on who you are and just kind of how much you care, because there are obviously people who have who don't know who have never heard of PubMed, who have been training people for a long time, get them fantastic results, uh, make no recourse to the science whatsoever. Like it doesn't like it's it's absolutely not necessary to be a good athlete good coach know what you're doing um, however, I do think it will absolutely help um, and I think it's something that you should be invested in if you care about like maximizing your results or maximizing your clients' results. Now, in terms of whether you should trust other people to interpret it for you or just read the full text of studies yourselves and interpret them, I'm, I'm of the opinion that the best way to go about it most of the time is to, uh, start by kind of having other people model it for you. So, you know, find bloggers who are interpreting science that have uh, that have done research, have scientific credentials, um, subscribe to research reviews, and like if they're reviewing a paper, find full text to that paper, pull it up, read it yourself, and then see how the other people are reading it and interpreting it uh, as a way to you know just kind of just guide your own interpretation um, you know it 's kind of like you're trying a recipe for the first time and you like pull up a serious eats video of Alden Brown doing it much better than you could. Uh, But it, it gives you like a a good idea of, of how the process is supposed to work for making this lasagna, which when you think about it is just spaghetti flavored cake. Um,
0: Is this how you feel when you watch me drink a beer like a champion? You're like, ah, that's how you're supposed to drink. Um, I have yet a lot to learn.
1: So for, for anyone listening to this, uh, me and Andy did an interview uh, back at my place in Asheville like three years ago, and we were we were chatting while also drinking beer the whole time. You can watch the you can watch the interview for yourself and come to your own conclusions about who was more fucked up at the end of it. my My very strong assumption is that most of you are going to say that. I, in fact, drink beer like a champion and Andy's a lightweight, but I will uh, I will let you form your own opinions.
0: I think you've just done in Kruger to yourself.
1: Nah, that's a it's not true, sir. (laughs) Anyway, um, so, yeah, first things first, I do think you should if you're interested in getting to the point where you can read and understand literature for yourself um, and you don't have formal training in it, pull up the full text, read it see what you get out of it and kind of compare notes with other people who do that more frequently and who've been doing it for longer and do it professionally. And then eventually just get to the point where you, you can just do it for yourself and you feel confident doing it. And I think it's important to note that if you're a trainer or coach, most of the stuff you should be reading and most of the stuff that's going to be relevant to you and your clients is not that hard to read. Um, Like if I pull up, some ridiculous like genomics paper in nature, I'm going to find myself lost like three paragraphs into it. But if you read like a periodization paper in Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research, it's, you know, like it's not, it's probably not going to be particularly engaging to read because scientific papers are written in the passive voice, which just tends to be less engaging. But none of the language is going to be that difficult. Um, And it's, I mean, it's straight up like, here are the people we recruited they did these two different training programs, and here here were their outcomes. Like, and it's it's not it's generally not going to be that difficult. Um, I I, <laughs> I would tend to say if you find yourself like really really struggling to understand a paper, and like you're a personal trainer, it's probably not a paper you need to be reading anyways. Like, they're most of the ones that are going to be the most useful and relevant to you are they're not they're just generally not that hard to read um like they're topics you should have a decent understanding of anyways the language isn't all that technical or all that dense um and yeah i think i think most people can and should get to the point where they can read and interpret papers for themselves
0: Hmm. what if if someone doesn't want to put that time investment in and they just wanted to Mm -hmm. subscribe to two or three research reviews that's still obviously that's like doesn't satisfy your level of curiosity but you'd still recommend that they would do that rather than
1: uh i I mean yeah absolutely like i make money off of that Uh, (laughs) but but no so so i i do think i do think it is um I think it's, I think it's useful to still read the stuff yourself. Um, just because like, they're like people, people are wrong sometimes. Like I, I find myself like semi-frequently disagreeing with, uh, like other people in the industry, like who I have a lot of respect for and who I generally agree with. Um, and like, I, I think I certainly benefit a lot from reading stuff myself and like coming to my own interpretations and drawing my own inferences. Uh, so no, like, like I said, to start this off, like, I don't, I don't think you absolutely have to do that by any means. Uh, but I, I think it's beneficial. And again, like with, with the papers that the people listening to this podcast, like should be reading, uh, and would benefit the most from like, it's not going to take that long to read, and they're really, really not that hard to understand most of the time. Um, I think kind of expert reviews and expert interpretations. Like, I think, I think the biggest thing you're going to get out of them is uh, like coming across like shortcomings of particular studies that you may have missed. Um, so, like, one of one of the things that I find myself harping on in mass way more often than I'd like to is when researchers use the wrong statistical tests or like calculate things incorrectly, which like that's unless you have like some sort of background in statistics, like that's not going to jump out at you, but it could like actually change the interpretation of a paper. Um, And yeah, then also maybe just some, uh, some, some shortcomings of research that might not immediately jump out at someone. For example, Uh, there was a recent paper comparing full range of motion to partial range of motion training for triceps hypertrophy. And, um, one of the things, like one of the shortcomings of the paper that I haven't seen anyone else talk about is that rep cadence was standardized, so it was one second eccentric, one second concentric for both the full and partial range of motion groups. Right. Uh, but partial range of motion, like the total range of motion was only about one third of what it was for the full range of motion group. Um, so effectively, and they terminated the set when a group contained that one second eccentric and concentric rep cadence. And so essentially what that meant is that the whole time, uh, like bar speed was, was lower for the partial range of motion group. Uh, which means that when they were approaching failure, average concentric velocity could be lower and average concentric velocity is like a very, very strong marker that you are actually close to failure. So yes, the study was comparing full versus partial range of motion, but it was also comparing one group that wasn't able to train particularly close to failure to another group that was able to train much, much closer to failure. Um, And so if you're just reading that through for yourself, especially if you're not um, like aware of the literature showing that average concentric velocity is a pretty strong marker of how close to failure someone is, that might not jump out at you. But like, since I am aware of that literature, that did jump out at me. So I do think uh, just just kind of like for stuff like that, it's it's beneficial to stay subscribed and keep reading other people's interpretations of papers. But I, I think I think most people can get most of what they need to out of a paper uh, after a while if they just do it. At the, like, if if they're just doing it themselves.
0: Just my opinion. Uh, that's a very good point. I think that's a really good example. Uh, that I I can't say that's something I would have spotted myself either. That's the show for this week. In the next part of the interview, we jump into some reader questions. Three requests. Number one, please subscribe if you haven't already. Two, if you can think of a friend that may find this episode useful, please message the link to them now. And three, if you could leave a review in iTunes, I'll love you forever. Until next time, peace.